Holy Madness is brought to you by JewishCoffeeHouse.com Ich verstehe nicht. This podcast taught me to play Stairway to Heaven on the ukulele, waxed my handlebar mustache, and balanced my checkbook. Without Holy Madness, I would still be a dead robot. You're listening to Holy Madness, episode 7. I'm your co-host, Mer Simcha. And I'm your other co-host, Tzvi. And we're going to be talking about Iran. Ashkan, stop it! I don't know how that guy got in here anyway. Isn't there a travel ban or something? <laughs> Alright, well, Iran has been in the news lately. It has? Well, again. No, because it really hasn't. No one's covered it. The The press has been strangely silent. You would think that a liberal press, um, or at least the liberal democracies press, would be happy to see people rising up against a theocratic authoritarian regime, but it seems that they don't care. But... As far as we're concerned, here at the Holy Madness headquarters studios in the leafy green hills of Jerusalem, we don't care because we're not talking about current events. I know they want to kill us. They is kind of an ambiguous pronoun. They want to kill you twice. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not even a dead robot anymore. (laughs) I was always flattered that I was both a great Satan and a little one. Yeah, you've, you've got it going and coming. Yeah. I used to play chess online, and being in the time zone that we are, I would pray, play frequently with people from Syria and Egypt and, to a lesser extent, Jordan uh, and also Iran. And the Egyptians and the Syrians hated me and had no problem telling me this. The Iranians were very friendly and nice, and um, on one occasion, I said, aren't you supposed to hate me? And the response was simply, no, my brother. And then the connection cut out. <laughs> Very dramatic. Yes. <laughs> well, the thing is this. The, there's Iran's a place where, I mean, this is already becoming uh, common knowledge, you know, which means that it's like at least a 50-year-old idea, right? Iran is a, is a place which has kind of two levels to it there's the government and then there's the people who live there and there's a surprising uh surprising divide between the two the government is is theocratic it's actually designed according to plato's republic really yeah you didn't know that i did not know that i mean didn't the ayatollah khomeini lord bless his uh, peace be upon him lord bless his soul cross my heart and hope to die may god bless him and keep him far away from us He's very dead. Khomeini's the first guy. I thought you were talking the reason. Not Khamenei. Khamenei can come very close. He's 85 years old. If you blow on him, he'll fall over. (laughs) Bye! So, when when Khomeini was in exile, he was in Paris. And he apparently spent a lot of time reading things that he thought were uh, forbidden Hmm. for anyone else to read. And one of the things it seems that he came across must have been 
Plato's Republic, Hmm. because when he returned to Iran, he designed a government which had the trappings of rule of the people, but included and was based on, and I'm going to butcher this because I don't speak Farsi, the concept of Vilayat Ifaki, which means rule of the sages. Hmm. So the true power in Iran is not the prime minister or the president. It's in this council of sages. The philosopher kings. Exactly. Hmm. Who have the power to overrule everything. So in Iran, for example, there are elections. And technically, you could run, but you need to apply for permission to this council of sages. Ah. So they vet all the candidates first. A lot of this stuff that you read in the news about, That's you know, like... That's very wise of them. Yes. So a lot of this stuff you read in the news about the moderates and the, the hardliners is really a narrative that they're writing hmm. because they're picking the candidates based on these ideas. And then, of course, there's a Can third... you imagine how the U.S. presidential election would have gone if it had gone through the U.S. Council of Sages? Who's on the U.S. Council of Sages? Probably Newt Gingrich, maybe... Well, then it did. He approved Trump. He actually did. Stephen Colbrenner. See, I thought you were going to go with, like, I don't know, Miley Cyrus. Like, drugs are for idiots, and I'm never going to be that person. And I think as long as I steer clear of that and keep that mind frame, I think I'll be cool. Oh, yeah. Jay-Z. The strongest thing a man can do is cry. Mm -hmm. To expose your feelings, to be vulnerable in front of the Mm -hmm. world. That's real strength. When did you realize your mother was gay? Yeah. Shining lights of wisdom and knowledge for all of us. How about Will Ferrell? My plums, beautiful bluish hue. The sun just dancing right off of them, just nice. Getting ready to take them to market. So, not only that, but the this council of, of sages and its supreme leader, the, the head Ayatollah, who today is Khamenei, not to be confused with Khomeini, as we already have twice. How um, do you get elected to that position? The The council elects its next member. It's kind of similar to voting for the Pope. Can we audition for that? I think I would be great. I have the beard. You have the beard. I have I a beard, too. Yeah, but mine's long and, and, and sage-looking. I'll grow my beard out. That's a big thing for you to take on just for a job. We can be co Khomeinis. those business cards would look awesome (laughs) so they also control a third well technically law enforcement but it's not exactly law enforcement it's kind of a paramilitary organization revolutionary guard yes the basiji uh, as they're known there and these guys kind of makes you think of siege well, it makes me think of the mafia because it's basically what they are. Hmm. So they're actually, just to illustrate this, there was this big expose. Where, does Kham, where did Khamenei get his money? He's worth like tens of billions of dollars. Wow. So where did he get it all? When he came to power, he was a schnook. He was literally like a Rosh Hashiva that they just picked out of a hat. Well, they didn't. He was a compromise candidate between two other guys. What about you? That doesn't seem like a way to pick the top sage. Well, what they were hoping was you'd have a a kind of uh, triad 
where he would hmm. be the decider, right? The moderator between these two things. But he basically went out and destroyed them both, and then rules as a, a you know. They should have put them in a cage and had them rumble. That hmm. would that would have been you know, like in the Republican primary. <laughs> So what he did was, is it seems that but a lot of people left Iran following the revolution in 79. I worked for one. Cool. I don't. Not and presently. I, I know. I'm joking. So there was a big question what to do with all their property. The people who escaped, escaped. Ah. So there was all this stuff sitting there. And they set up a charitable trust that would take control of this property that's very charitable of them wait no it was at the time it would take control of the property Mm -hmm. and it would put it to use for the public so let's say somebody left an apartment building behind it would become subsidized housing or it would be sold and put back into the economy and the proceeds would go towards paying for social services and things like that what a nice idea Khamenei weaponized it, and now we'll just knock on random people's doors, and they announce they're taking it. Oh. And you have to pay, like, a fine if you want to keep it, so they get money either way. Um, And this is how he's built this wild fortune. And Mm. it's very hard to say no to this ostensible charitable trust, because they're backed up by a paramilitary organization that pretty much is the backbone of the army. To say that they might break your knees is an understatement. Well, I think they would do that first, and then <laughs> they'd move on. So, at any rate, this is uh, that that's Iran today, and the people there aren't really all that theocratic at all. Uh, everybody by now has seen the pictures all over social media where. You know, you've got the Iran in 1975 and then Iran today. And, you know, in 75, all these nice pretty girls and they're walking around in jeans and it looks like a regular Western country. And then, you know, today it looks like, uh, I don't know, ISIS or whatever, a fundamentalist place at any rate. So let's not confuse Sunni and Shia here. Right. They would be very mad about that. And as soon as they stop killing each other. And Arabs and Persians too, man. Well, that's where I'm headed with this. Because they're Muslims people tend to lump Iran into what people very silly, silly, I invented that word, everyone. All those bearded people who live in the same. Yeah, they're all the same. They're all Arabs. And and they're not. In fact, Iran is quite a new name for a very, very ancient people. So Iran comes from a word that meant the land of the Iranians and... That word comes from Aryan. I've heard of that one before. Says the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jew. (laughs) Well, half of me's heard it before. Yes. So Aryan goes way back into Sanskrit, where it seems to mean something like... Actually, it goes back before Sanskrit into Proto-Indo-European, probably, where it seems to mean something like compatriot or like somebody from a good family. Hmm. Right, it didn't actually refer to an ethnicity, it referred to like a caste within that group of tribes. Which is kind of funny for a word that became a literal foundational basis point for genocide. And on that happy note, let's talk about some of the great things about the ancient Persian Empire. Well, the ancient Persian Empire, first of all, 
had a population of 50 million people. That's bigger than New York City. That's about the same size as the population of Great Britain today. Wow. That's a lot. That is a big ancient empire. Yeah, in fact, it, it was pretty much the biggest ever. It, by geographic spread, it was the biggest today. By population-wise, hmm. it seems it was the biggest ever. Wow. So both in physical size and in population size, biggest thing ever done. These guys, you know, the king, the king of kings. Right, they called. call him the king of kings. Right. And of course, in Hebrew, we have Melech Malachim, the king of king of kings. <laughs> We're one up on you. So in order to run this place, he, and not only that, this is a place which was made up of tribes. So to have a top-down monarchy, it's very difficult in such a climate. So they invented a system which allowed for tribes to more or less be semi-autonomous, semi-autonomous, and they had these satraps, that's a, a satrapies. You're saying that it's multicultural but federalist. Exactly. What a good idea. Yeah. I mean, I would say who would have had that, but we're discussing who did. So in order to run this place effectively through these... Uh, governors, these satraps, and usually about 20 to 30 at a time, they developed a road system. This mm. was not like footpaths. When I think of great roads, I think of Romans. Yes, all roads lead to Rome, but that's pretty presumptuous. These guys had what was called the Royal Road, which served as the main trunk highway, mm -hmm. I guess, was 1,700 miles long. It wow. stretched from pretty deep into Turkey all the way out to Elam. That's a long road. And included in that was this kind of postal system. How far is it from New York to L.A.? New York to L.A. is about 2,800 miles. But for American listeners, this is the equivalent of a road from a highway from New York to Denver. Hmm. That's not a small thing. Route 66. Basically. But 2,000 years ago. So as I was saying, they also had a postal system in order mm. to facilitate communication around the empire. And they had a dedicated system of runners that were, you know, essentially postmen. That's a long way to run. Yeah, well, riders. They, had, they sent them on horses. They had domesticated horses. Yeah. Some of the other things uh, they did, they invented this kind of refrigeration. Not really? the white thing with the motor in your kitchen, but... They figured out how to use uh, essentially the wind to hmm. create these cool chambers. Wind power. Kind of. I mean, they were using the wind to push hot air out of spaces and keep them cool like that. Kind of similar, let's say, a, a, you know, you go into a cave in the summer. Mm -hmm. um, but they basically built this kind of cave type thing. A wind cave. Yeah. And this would keep their food over the summers, you know, pr preservation-wise. Two other things quickly. Uh, they invented, apparently, the world's first uh, vertical axis windmills. What does that mean? Um, meaning that the thing that's spinning is oh, on an the, axis sticking mm. straight up. And lastly, they invented paradise. <laughs> Which has now been populated by Isis murders. Nope. Nope. No, it hasn't. It better not be anyway. Or we're all in for a rude awakening. Yeah, well, they're all going to get their 70 raisins. 72 raisins, I thought. 72 raisins. Yeah, don't take away those two raisins from them. They earn them. 
So what is a pardes? A well, pardes? yes, we have that word in, as pardes, although we picked it up from the Greeks who had it as paradesos. It's Greek. Because the word in Iranian was pairidoiza or something to that effect because I'm butchering it. And basically they were the first people to think of gardening or gardens for aesthetics. Think of like national parks. Hmm. That was kind of the idea. What was paradise for the Persians? What was a Persian paradise? It was a garden. It was a, it was a luxury garden. It was meant to be a personal oasis. Personal so Persian kings, paradise with peaches. Say that ten times fast. Win a free Holy Madness t-shirt. Perhaps. Okay, I got what you just did. <laughs> so they would plant these gardens and stock them with all these different kinds of uh, fruit trees and animals and everything. They'd create these little kind of oases of nature, hmm. but in an aesthetic sense. And that would be to go, that would, that's where they would go to think, to relax, to get away. So the kings would build their own private ones in, by, you know, in the palaces or by the palaces. And uh, there would be these, I guess, more public ones as well. This was the happy place for a person who could afford to have such a thing. Right. Or a person who would visit it. But that was their conception of a happy place. Dear listeners, do you know where Tzvi's happy place is? I hope not. Ikea. Now they do. <laughs> so they invented these gardens, and they became that became paradise. And the idea of this beautiful, uh, happy place that people go to eventually was co-opted, as we mentioned, through Greek, actually into Mishnaic Hebrew as well. It's the Jews. It always is. And threw that into French. Hmm. And threw that into English. So that's a little bit about ancient Persia. We're going to take a short break here and come back with a little different angle about ancient Persia because we Jews, as a people, spent a very formative period of our, uh, of our lives there. What did the Persians ever do for us? Stay tuned and find out. Up all the trees, put them in a tree museum. And they charge the people a dollar and a half just to see them. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. And we're back. We did pave paradise and put up a parking lot, but we also took hell and made it into a garden. Our hell is called Gehenna, Gehenna, and that's actually a abbreviation of Gay Ben Hinnom, which means the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. And that valley is a five-minute walk from here. Yes, is a five-minute walk from here, so that when I'm told go to hell, it's a local trip. But more importantly. It's the valley right outside of the old city at the foot of Mount Zion, and it was turned into a park. That was my joke a moment ago about we paved <laughs> paradise, but we turned hell into a park. Hell is literally a leafy green, beautiful place 
to sit in the quiet because the, the noise of the streets up top doesn't reach into the valley. And you can sit there in perfect solitude, and it truly is, in terms of how we were describing the Persian conception of a paradise, a paradisa, hell is now paradise. What the hell? We truly live in a topsy-turvy world. The Arabs breed horses there. Sure, and they bring sheep through all the time also. Yeah. We referenced that in our Jerusalem episode. <laughs> Callback number one. Anyway, okay, so what have the Persians ever done for us? So this is a tricky question to answer. Why? Because the truth is, we took two trips through Persia at two very different times, a half a millennia apart. Okay, so wind us back. We have... The first temple period, the northern kingdom, Israel, splits off from the southern kingdom, Judah. They get run over, ten tribes lost, and then keep going. Well, and then the Babylonians come, they destroy the temple, and they exile the Jews. They bring most of the cultural elite into Babylon okay. while, leaving the, while leaving the peasant class on the land. Salt of the earth. Literally. Yeah. They left them there to just so that they would get taxes off the land. I mean, yeah. it doesn't pay to conquer territory you're not going to benefit from. So they left them there, and then they would ship the grain back to Babylon, and that was great. But meanwhile, the the epicenter of Jewish culture... The cultural epicenter of the world. Was, right, but it, not just the world, but our epicenter moved. Certainly, yeah. To Babylon. Mm -hmm. And then the Babylonian Empire kind of fell rather rapidly. This is uh, a whole wild story in our tradition itself, and, and truth is in regular good old world history. Well, the writing was on the wall. Yes. <laughs> yes, it was. Um, and, uh, and then the Persians kind of seamlessly usurped the vacuum that was left... By the fall of, of, of Babylon. So that's a very significant transition for us. We actually count those as two different Galuyot, two different exiles. Right. Even though, in reality, it was the same period and not many people moved. It's not like we came back in between this and that. Right. Well, okay, so I'm suggesting <laughs> that if we're going to count Persia as a separate exile, what that's telling us is even though they were contiguous in time, they were genuinely different experiences yes one of the, one of the first things you find in the bible in tanakh uh in terms of our experience of that usurpation of the babylonians by the persians mm -hmm. is that the first thing that happens is cyrus the great suddenly he wasn't just mediocre yeah he was he was the great he made the exile great again. Wait, when you were growing up reading, did you ever read Nate the Great? Yeah, totally. Right? Did that not kill your appreciation for Cyrus the Great? I always pictured him as a guy with a magnifying glass. Dude, I didn't hear about <laughs> Cyrus the Great until I was at least 23 years old. Oh, same here. Which is hilarious because of our different backgrounds. <laughs> you grew but... up religious. Right. Well, who heard of Cyrus? Who, who learned Bible? <gasps> we were what? all knee deep in the Talmud. Well, he's not called great in the Talmud or in the Tanakh. No, no, he's not. Uh, is in Hebrew, his name is uh, Hebraicized to Koresh. Koresh. Um, but Cyrus is famous for the Cyrus Proclamation. 
Cyrus is the first guy in the world to sing Kumbaya around the campfire. Kumbaya, my lord. Kumbaya. Kumbaya, my lord. Kumbaya. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> Cyrus, after conquering a good portion of the known world at the time, announces... A freedom of religion edict for the entire empire. What was his religion, by the way? He was Zoroastrian. Were they really Zoroastrians then? Yeah. At any rate, he, he's the first guy in the world that kind of says, you do you. And and we can all still be an empire. The, the, hmm. all the, look, the, the multicultural ideal of the West... We'll come back to this. But the multicultural ideal of the West was already inherent in this proclamation. And this is so ground-shaking that we have it reproduced word for word in the Bible. And the reason we do is because that proclamation leads directly to the rebuilding of the temple. The second temple comes as a direct result of Cyrus's edict. Okay, so then we go back to Eretz Israel, back to the land of Israel. We do the whole second temple era, which is 420 years. We have we, a good time with the Greeks. Yeah, little bit of back and forth. The, the Romans, Romans show up. They overrun the Mediterranean basin. We geniusly... Among other things. Yes, among other things. <laughs> they kind of took the place over. Some hotheads didn't like that. The Romans responded in kind. Before you know it, the temple's gone. No! The Romans and, and the Persians go back and forth. The Arabs have a good time in the middle. Right, playing each side, paid as mercenaries. But what winds up happening to us... Power vacuum and we wind up back in... So many Jews wound up moving westward. Whether that was on slave uh, slave convoys or voluntarily, they wound up in Rome and the Roman lands. And many Jews decided to hell with Rome. They burned. I mean, they they did burn the temple. Mm-hmm. So they went east, Back and they to wound where up. We had been before, right? And you know that's a good place to be. Yeah, we had been there before, and 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 uh, you know God appears to Ezekiel at the border over there and so they went there and and amazingly the locus of Jewish life the area that all the rabbinical schools the yeshivot are in this is where the talmud was written exactly well that's where it was written this all takes place in persia the two main centers of jewish learning are in sura and pumbedisa which are both under the control of the Sassanids. And what's really amazing is what comes out of the first time that we were in the Persian, uh, an exile in Persia, is the, f- the finalization of the written Torah. Torah Shebikhtav. That's Megillat Esther, the book of Esther. Right. And also the what we call the Anshe Knesset Hagdola. Well, there's the transition point, right? Right, where they decide which books are in the canon, which books are out. This is the end of the era and the finalization of what is considered to be Torah. The closing of the canon of the written Torah. Exactly. And then the second time around, we have the writing of the Talmud. So in both instances, the final touches of the two forms of Torah 
take place in, of all weird places, Persia. Mm-hmm. So we started with what did the Persians ever do for us? And the answer is a hell of a lot. They were good hosts. They were, well, for the most part. You had your occasional, you know, flare up and... Pogrom. Yeah, murder, spree. But, you know, by and large, as far as, as far as what we're used to, <laughs> <laughs> it was fine. But, but more than that, and, and I think it's worth pointing this out, I don't think it's an accident that both of these things, both times where we're finalizing the form of a section of Torah, that it takes place there. So this is an instance of transformation or formation outside of the land of Israel, right? So it's through that experience of being in another empire, of being a stranger in a strange land, that we come to something new, that something's discovered for us. That's our story. Right. So that's a repeated process for us. Yeah. Before you mentioned that we have four archetypical Let's start at the beginning because there's a fifth, which is really the first. There's the exile in Egypt. Okay. In which the, the quote you used somewhat sarcastically, that's where it's from. You will be strangers in a strange land. It's told to Abraham. The Brit Benipatari. Right. It's told to Abraham about how his progeny is going to go down to Egypt and will be strangers in a strange land. But eventually will come out of there having grown into something which will allow them to inherit the land of Israel. Oh, back up one one or two verses before that where the heck does that whole discussion with god come from so right before that god tells abraham your children are going to inherit this land up until that point the language of inheritance hadn't been used correct abraham thought that he was essentially a an influencer that it wasn't it had nothing to do with his children it had to do with what he was going to teach the world right so the the whole idea that there would be some special link to genetics that there would even be a nation of israel right exactly right okay i have a philosophical movement what you're telling me that this is genetic genetic what there should be a dynasty what are you talking about my kids might be schmucks exactly but the you know the guys next door you know, they might be okay, but the whole point is that these people are you know, pursuing a philosophical trip here. This isn't, and now you come and you tell me that you're going to, that my children are going to inherit this, that they have some inherent connection to this place. That's, that's wild. That flies I, in the face of everything I've ever thought. Beyond that, it, it, it's not just that I have this philosophical trip as opposed to some genetic trip. It's also that if you believe in freedom of will, God, how on earth can you guarantee such a thing? Right. What happens if they all turn around tomorrow and say, we all became Hare Krishna? Right. So the... the if we have any listeners who are Hare Krishna, we have nothing against you. It's just a very... Uh, different. Yeah. And uh, just random. <laughs> and we have weird haircuts, too. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. And not us personally, of course. But uh, there are many people with weird haircuts. Yes. In fact, our audience is bald. All of them? <laughs> we have an audience of one, so yes. <laughs> oh, you mean our studio audience? Yes, yes, yes. Our studio audience, yes. At any rate. So Avraham's reply to God is, Bama edaki irashena. How, can you, how on earth do I know? How do I know such a thing? How this, does this make sense? How can you guarantee me? Was, this is actually part of the, the way you worded the question. How on earth can you guarantee that such a thing will take place in a world of free will and a search for truth? Absolutely. 
And God's answer is shocking. Even today. It doesn't even sound like an answer. How do I know that my children will inherit the land? Well, because they'll be strangers in a strange land for 400 years. And they'll be, you know, worked to the bone and go through this terrible time. And it goes through quite a few adjectives. Choshech and... Eimach, Hashecha. Eimach, So each of those words corresponds to another one of these And this is so... Exiles. It just flies in the face of everything that, you know, you know the famous Jewish joke, right? No. The guy dies... The little Jew dies, he goes up to heaven, he's put in front of the tribunal, and with the typical Jewish chutzpah, we invented that word, he says, excuse me, I'm asking the questions. (laughs) So, God. Yes. uh, Is it true that we are your chosen people? Yes. Yes. And is it true that we are generally beaten, raped, pillaged, murdered, thrown out, exiled, bit upon, uh, etc., etc., etc.? Yes. So, do me a favor. Pick someone else. <laughs> because it really flies in the face of all reason. Or at least it seems to. And we kind of hinted at the answer a moment ago. And it's worth bringing out. The things in life that change you, and, and literally change you, that you're not the same person walking out as you were walking in. I mean, here's a great example. Star Wars. When Luke is training with Yoda, so there's this moment... Which is like, you know, really cliche, the hero before going on to whatever he has to face himself, right? So he goes into the thing mm-hmm. and uh, he he slays Darth Vader in this like vision thing and Darth Vader's mask, you know, fades away and, and it's his own face. In a cave, right? In a cave. Yeah. It's always a cave. We're going to do an episode on caves. We definitely will. Stay tuned. So, the, but, but the thing that's transformational, Luke is not the same person when he walks out of that cave that he is when he walks in. That's the whole point of his going in there. And the way that, that we, as a people, conceptualize... training with Yoda. Is to get to the point to... that he can go into the cave. Mm-hmm. But I... not to get him to who he is when he goes out. Yoda can't make him the guy that he is when he comes out. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point. You still need to go through something that is transformative. That by virtue of you going through it, it will form you or reform you into something which is different. Our people's conception of exile is not a waiting period. There are a lot of different conceptions of what it means to be an exile in this world. We're not the only people that lays claim to the title diaspora, for example. And we are not the only people that lays claim to waiting for redemption. Mm -hmm. But the way we conceptualize that waiting... Well, Egypt became the paradigm for for African Americans, their struggle for freedom. Yes, Iran has quite a diaspora today. Sure. There's uh, probably about 100,000 of them in Los Angeles alone. Yeah. And for our Jewish audience, there's probably more than that just in Great Neck. I know quite a few Hello, people who've had uh, amazing dialogues with Native Americans about exile and, and the their, loss of land yeah. and return to heritage. And how they see their future and their return. And Look, that's not a unique thing. Mm-hmm. But what's unique, what is unique about the Jewish people is that we look at exile as formative and transformative. It doesn't have to be unique. We'd be happy to export that idea. I, and the truth is, I think we have. Mm-hmm. I really think we have, because at this point, like we pointed out, it's in the movies. It's cliched that if you're going to go through this tough time, which challenges you and takes you out of where you're supposed to be and makes you go through all this other stuff. It's because you're going to come out of that a different person and therefore able 
to be the hero or to be the person that you need to become. The way that we see exile as formative and transformative is that it's an absorptive process. We don't see ourselves as being the sole arbiters of truth. That's a, that's a, that's a sentence that really bears repeating. We don't see ourselves as the sole arbiters of truth. Can I say that even more strongly? Sure. We are a mess. And the only way that you get out of the mess is by going out there and confronting stuff and dealing with it. And how could we possibly understand the word of God when we're such a mess? The only way we'll actually come to any understanding of Torah is we go out there and confront the world and discover what what's really in there to what, begin with what reality is and and here is really where god's answer to abraham starts to make sense when god tells abraham you want to know how you're going to inherit it you're going to wind up going through hell that's yeah. that's the that's the mechanism mm-hmm. how you can guarantee this because you're going to have to face all this stuff down and you're going to have to find answers or at least better questions and that itself, through what you absorb from what's around you and reintegrate what it is that you've absorbed, you will come out differently. You were never meant to be pure. You were meant to purify. In the same way in metallurgy, purifying means taking everything that's there and taking out what's important. You're meant to go purify things. Not to be pure and not, to be distinct not and to, to be have separate. Been pure. Right. There's no self to have taken for granted. Exactly. So it's an absorptive process. Our question here, what did Persia ever do for us? Needs to be a question of what did we absorb while we were in Persia, which we've started to get into. And, and that would answer why, what it's done for us. Why should it be Persia. What was particular about Persia that allowed it to happen? Why did that happen in Persia as opposed to the Babylonian exile in particular? And and obviously that would be because it was present in Persia and it wasn't present necessarily in Babylon. Okay, but what was special about Persia? So what are these things? I think there are two things in particular among many, but we'll highlight two. And we did such a darn good job of absorbing them that certainly in one case, we became the paragon of the idea. To the world. <laughs> to to the point where to even tell people that this came from Persia sounds what we would call a chidush. Yeah. This is something like, wait, what? Really? It's new? Wow. Those, well, well, one at a time. The first one, we touched on this briefly before, but even in, in both instances, and this is so central to the Persian self-concept that it's true in modern day Iran as well. What are you talking about? Is that they believed in in multiculturalism. Ah, okay. So this is brought out very clearly in the beginning of Megillat Esther. Correct. Esther. That's, that's the first trip around. But even the second trip, the Sassanids don't get as much credit for this because they weren't as large. Hmm. But the Sassanids ran the same decentralized, uh, semi-autonomous regioned empire mm-hmm. that the Archimenids, uh, I'm tripping over my own teeth here, did the persians believed in a value in differences and that through the contrast and comparison of differences one could come to a greater understanding rather than a lesser one there's a beautiful way to bring out 
this aspect of the multicultural nature of the Persian Empire, which is that the lingua franca, the umbrella language of the empire, was not Persian, not whatever the Medeans spoke, but Aramaic. That's brilliant. Why, why would it be Aramaic? Well, because that's what the Bablim were speaking, so that's what people already spoke. So, fine, we'll just go with that. We'll keep going with yeah. that. Yeah, you know, it's practical, it works, and that's great. So, that that's the first thing. That this multicultural melting pot style empire. As we, the Jewish people, emerge from this multicultural empire, we emerge from it with this new appreciation for differences of opinion, differences of approach. It, it's more than just differences of opinion. It's really different faces of reality, the Shivim Panim the Torah. Yes. And it, to the extent that eventually when the Anshe Knesset Gadolah, the assembly of the great assembly, turns into the Sanhedrin, when the Sanhedrin votes, if you do not have a unique reason for your opinion, your opinion does not count. It is not the way that we do majority voting today. It's not a contest of how many votes can you get this way or that way. The voting process is a question of, well, how do we implement Torah practically in the world? And the way to come to that isn't to just weigh, well, who feels more this way or that way. It's, it's which, to what extent can we integrate different opinions to come to whatever our present path is going to be. Right, which is why, and this is a parenthetical point, the the first great uh, arguments among schools of thought that we have in history is between Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel, the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. We have as a rule that we, we follow the opinion of the school of Hillel, oh, and the why? reason we do that mm-hmm. is essentially because it's more open for uh, differences of opinion within a structure, it's not as rigid. Mm-hmm. It's not as... Uh, and by the way, that's, that's also... It's a funny thing. You would think that people who are on, in a pursuit of truth would be minimalist. Either it's true or it's not. Mm-hmm. And we actually go... Black and white. Right. Know. And we go with the school of thought that's not... Mm-hmm. That way at all, that but rather allows for more the greatest space mm-hmm. for differences of opinion within a structure. That's the best way to move forward. This actually goes back to episode two of the podcast where we're talking about why bad ideas exactly. happen to good people. What we need is diversity of opinions so that something can emerge out of that. You need liberty in order to pursue truth. Right. Well, this is how that tradition developed. We sided with mm-hmm. the school of Hillel because this is what it this is what it created. What fascinates me in this is that everybody claims that uh, science emerges out of the Greek tradition and Western morality emerges out of the Hebraic tradition. But if you look at the Greek approach to science, or at least the way that the Greek approach to science entered into Western civilization. It was extremely monolithic. It was all Aristotle, and then medicine got Galen, but science was stuck in Aristotle for the longest time because there wasn't 
this diversity. It was so focused on the transmission of this one line of thinking, whereas science today feeds off of the diversity of approaches and looking at things from a million different angles and the really the evolution of ideas as one thing is tested against another and the competition of ideas. And that's very much what we're talking about here. That's something that started to that's that's something that's starting to emerge more and more in uh, academic literature about you know early modernism and Hebraic thought and and Newton was uh, was deeply immersed in Hebraic thought. Okay, that's 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 point one: multicultural aspect, what we absorbed from that, and what we grew into from that. But there's another which is far more fundamental. I don't know if it's more fundamental, but it's I would I would it's deep. I would argue it's absolutely more fundamental. For starters, it's one of our fundamental points of belief. And and besides that, it's pretty fundamental in today's world because it's pretty much the dividing line between atheist and believer. And that is belief in an afterlife. Hmm. Wait, hold on. Are you saying that this is a foreign import into Judaism from Zoroastrianism? No. No, I'm not. And I'd like to make that very clear. What are you saying? What I'm saying is this. The Jewish people in, in, our, in our suite of holy books do not have a defined system of belief for an afterlife. That is true. I'm going to grant you that. We don't have a defined system of belief. We don't have to find anything, but that's what makes us Jews. But what I mean is Moses spends all of his time, not most, all of his time discussing life in this world. Mm -hmm. There are hints and there are allusions to a, a a world to come or a life to come, but it's never presented as something central. In in the Zoroastrian beliefs that the Persians had, this was a defining aspect of their belief system. And we had to grapple with that. And because we had to grapple with that, we A, accentuated it in our beliefs, and B, refined it as to not enter into the problem of how do you live in this world if you think that the point is the next? Ah. Mm-hmm. So that that was the arena. So you're saying that the encounter with Persia brought this out of Torah. Well, I think the best way to put it is and, it brought it into the forefront. And it okay. forced us to define and confront mm-hmm. the concept to a point where we can stay true to caring about this world while living lives that are dedicated to a world outside of it. In a way you could say that these two ideas are that these two ideas are maybe equally fundamental, but the first one that we're talking about is essentially about how to relate to this world, whereas the second idea that we're talking about now is about about the next world. Absolutely. And it's it's amazing that you frame it in such a way because the truth is historically one of those came up from our first trip through Persia hmm. and the other came up through the second. Wow. So what is the idea of Olam Haba that emerges from this encounter with Persia? 
Okay, so first to translation, right? Olam haba, which is often translated into English as the world to come, actually means the world which is coming, or the world which is coming into being, you could say. Okay. okay. Which suggests... That it's already here, first of all. Well, more... Well, okay. It has a presence that is... To put it in just less obtuse terms, that the world coming into being is the same world you're living in, but your frame of definition is not your 80 years on the planet, but the world as a whole. Mm -hmm. So that your frame of reference changes from your life to life. The way I like to put it when trying to explain this to some people is most people will sit there and say, you know, what do I want my life to be? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. But I I like to try to think of what will I leave behind when I'm food for worms? In three generations from now, what will your life have been? An anecdote? A tombstone? Or something that's still living on because it's part of the ongoing process of creation? I'm participating in life. What is life about? Somebody who's living a life with those questions in mind is by definition part of a world that's coming into being. There's something a little paradoxical here, which is that when we think about existence in Olam Haba, we tend to think about the survival of consciousness after death, which is, we're talking about an individual consciousness. Right. Whereas now... When we're talking about what constitutes that world, we're talking about it from a holistic perspective. Dafka, not individualistic. Well, I think that it's amazing sphere. that that's how you frame it, because what what our people wound up doing is finding a conception of exile and redemption that can be both national and personal at the same time. That when we found ourselves in another place, in another culture, in another conception of the universe, that we manage to recreate, to reform with both senses of that word implied. Mm-hmm. You know, the reform and, and to reform our beliefs to account for both an individual and a societal, a cultural, a total however you want to put it, that comes from the Persians pushing this world to come to the forefront because this is the first time we have to really grapple with is the world to come something that has to do with me or something that has to do with the totality of humanity. And if you're going to tell me it's just the totality of humanity, so then what do I have to do with it? Oh, okay. So, mm-hmm. and, and this is what forced us to define in the sense of really get down in a nitty-gritty a worldview which accounted for the individual the totality in terms of a nation and a world and the interplay between the two or three such as now and we take this for granted and it's such a beautiful thing when in our experiences of our own lives We feel as if we're in exile. You and I have talked about this plenty of times, Mm -hmm. not on the podcast, but we've talked about this many times, where in your life, you may feel as if you are in exile. And and to us, it always comes with this very strange 
experience because we are literally living the redemption of our people. For 2,000 years, we've done nothing but pray that Jerusalem be rebuilt. And today, Jerusalem stretches all the way to the next biblical city. I mean, where we're sitting right now is maybe a few miles at most away from the next biblical city over. What used to be a, 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 a trip of, let's say, you know, a few hours, you and I could walk in minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's an amazing thing that your life is... I, I, I used to say this all the time as a bit of a joke. You know, the, my previous job took me all over the country, mm-hmm. the middle of the country, certainly. And I'd find myself in rush hour traffic, mm-hmm. especially in Highway 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd be sitting there and be like, oh, my gosh, I just want to get home. It's ridiculous. Why can't they put the third lane for the entire highway? Why does it disappear for a stretch and create a <laughs> bottleneck? And this is just stupid. And ah, I just want to get home. And then I stop. I'm like, you know, if someone would have told my grandparents, <laughs> I can't believe it. I'm stuck Your in traffic. Your grandchild will merit to sit no, 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 in traffic. No, 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 just, just sit the there. Like, listen, I'm stuck in traffic. I'm on the way back from Jaffa to Jerusalem. <laughs> and I'm stuck in traffic. And oh my God, is that terrible? There's traffic. They would have, right. The first question would be, what are you doing there? And the second question would be, what do you mean there's traffic? And the what third are the question other would be, doing that? you mean everyone on the highway is Jewish? <laughs> Did the Messiah come? And if the Messiah came, why is there traffic? Go back another generation and what are you sitting in? Right. What's a car? <laughs> so the, the, the point being, and then it occurs to you that you're living. You're living. The culminations of prophecies, and suddenly traffic Beyond doesn't prophecies. seem right. Suddenly traffic doesn't seem so bad. But the thing is, for all the wonder of the world that we live in, I, I at least am still left with the experience of emptiness and futility and. What the hell am I doing anyway? Yeah, you're still stuck in traffic when it's all said and done. It's not just a logistical issue of being stuck in traffic. No, it's I mean you. If 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 my life is going to be about being stuck in traffic... Right, then, then it's very nice that this is the prophecy, but maybe the prophet missed the point. Uh, okay, obviously I'm saying that cynically. But what I mean is it's very nice to be the culmination of a prophecy, but your experience of life is still not... An enjoyable one. Yeah, my, my experience sucks, and it seems like it shouldn't be that way. Right. And, and if, if everything is so great, and it is, why does my experience suck so bad? We've touched on this briefly in a few different episodes and different facets. We've anime. never... Yeah, even from the first episode, we talked about anime. Yeah. And, and I don't know if this is necessarily the place to give it its full treatment. And I think we will at some point. Because it's, it's pretty central to how you and I look at the world. As, as my Twitter uh, profile says, I'm a connoisseur of anime. I really am. <laughs> Jokes aside, but the concept of a personal exile is only conceivable when you've answered all these weird dichotomy-like questions of world to come, world that is, national, personal, and everything of the sort to the point where 
And again, we're kind of coming a little bit full circle here. When you bring up the, the, the typical hero narrative, that's the reason you have to face yourself. The ultimate exile is, where are you? Where are you is the ultimate exile question. Because if the answer isn't here, well, then you're elsewhere. This is amazing. The, the metaphor that we've used in our discussions of this is Yosef in the boar, is Joseph in the prison stuck in the prison right right and joseph when confronted with this issue by his brothers completely downplays it yeah no big deal no big deal Uh, individual exile which is precisely what he's been experiencing individual exile i was just put here to give food to everyone i am a conduit but you realize, by the way, that he the Bible takes his brings individual out individual experience and makes it about the whole. Right. And He's... the Bible brings out how utterly no one buys that crap. Because the brothers come back to him the minute their father is dead and go, Okay, we know the jig is up. And he does it again. He tries. <laughs> yeah. No, but that that's really the point. He tries. Because and this is slightly off topic, but just again for the bibliophiles and the Ave Torah, he realizes that there's no way out of this. What's he going to do? Say, no, I really do have tightness on you? I, I really am still hurt by this? And and then what? What are they going to do? There's nothing they can do for him. It's not even just the issue of, of being hurt personally by it. The reason why the personal hurt matters is that he's pushing the whole need for liberty and ex- exploration and and the sense of a personal in the first place and the sense of the personal and connection and personal connection and relationship and spontaneity and all of that which the brothers have been rejecting and that's not going to be resolved for a long time right well it still hasn't been yeah and and this is actually the perfect place to kind of step back with a flourish and say here's the point that those two levels of exile, the personal and the national, hmm. haven't really been fully resolved. You you always have, this is almost cliched, nations are formed and reformed and unformed and then reformed again. And, and always within two generations, everybody's sitting there going, so what was the point? So what does that have to do with me? Mm-hmm. So you and I grew up in America, and that's an easy one. So they declare their, their independence from the British... And they try to create this sense of, you know, fairness and democracy and, and, and you know, the brotherhood of man and all this wonderful stuff. And, and, you know, 80 years later, they're off killing each other to the point where, like, I think it was like a third of all the military aged men in America died within five years. And look, we're we're fans of David Goldman, Spangler, as his pen name is. And he says all the time that, that America is an almost chosen nation. He's not making that up. Lincoln called it that. Mm-hmm. And on purpose. Mm-hmm. Because the minute the Civil War was over, the Americans kind of collectively said, if this is what it means to be chosen, count me out. If what it means to be chosen is I have to bury two sons out of three, I'm done. We, you and, and again, and, and, and this is something that, as a side point, I believe that today's America is, is Lincoln's creation, not Washington's. The real founding father of America is Lincoln and what he did from 18, you know, 60, 1864. That, that's not important. The point is, we relived this a few years ago with Iraq. 
that, that people sent their children to die for a vision that ultimately wasn't theirs. And they were so turned off by it that within 10 years, their attitude was, we have no interest in policing the world if that's the price I have to pay. We have no interest in continuing the status quo as a nation. And I'd rather burn it down to the point where everyone voted for the... the he defined himself as the burn it down candidate. We're going to drain the swamp. Because on some level, there's this wild divide between the personal and the national. And to really come full circle, this is where we started. Iran is a country which has a government and a people. And there's this chasm between the two. Talk about your Twitter contact. I, I've been following the developments in Iran in the last couple of weeks. For those of you that are going to listen to this outside of, you know, immediately, uh, there were protests in Iran in January of 2018, and they weren't really covered by the media, as we jokingly mentioned in the beginning. Um, and it I turns made, out to not just be a joke. It's really right, a tragedy. Right, it's quite, well, more than a tragedy. It's just, it's, it's not a joke. It's quite intentional. Yeah, Oprah's um, speech got more press than... Than 2,000 yeah. university students being brutally beaten and thrown in jails. But, you know, Oprah, I a like car o- for you. I, I like Oprah, but I, 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 it would have well, been nice if she mentioned Iran. I mean, well, she was talking about the nice. role of the press. No, here's the thing. I don't care if Oprah mentions Iran. Oprah's an entertainer. She doesn't have to mention Iran. But CBS might have happened to, you know... Well, Oprah spoke and she said nice stuff... And also, <laughs> there's something going on. But they don't, and they won't. The point being, I made a friend in Tehran. She's a dear friend. Obviously, I've never met her. Obviously, I know very little about her. Our interactions are through Twitter. Twitter is a fantastic medium to meet people based on their ideas, based on their interests. Hmm. As opposed to what they take out of life, you know. And 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 over the last two weeks, she's kind of been my eyes on the ground in Tehran. She's a really special person. This is a person that, that when I first met her, she insisted I put a note for her into the Kotel. Which, the Western Wall. Yeah. Which blew my mind. First of all, how'd she know about that? And then that it would be meaningful for her to do. Mm-hmm. You know, is just insane. Yeah, and and it completely fried my mind. How is this possible? Mm. Where did she even get this from? Mm-hmm. And because she had asked that of me, I kept in touch with her. It's like this is somebody I really want to get to know. Yeah. So in the last couple of weeks, she's really been my eyes on the ground. And and she described this this horrible horrible feeling of despair because the protests we went out into the streets we were beaten we were shot some of us were arrested some of those will never come out again and for what what the hell is the point and what's amazing is my response to her and i care for her i said you gotta leave get out do you you have money saved up she says yeah i've got about forty thousand dollars and it's even parked overseas I said, get on the next plane. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. And you're describing to me this utter sense of existential despair. That's not a life. So go to Bulgaria and become a taxi driver. 
I didn't say this to her, but in my mind, I'm thinking, go to Bulgaria and become a taxi driver. Mm -hmm. But at least you'll have a life. Yeah. There's a purpose. There's a story. There's a development. You're, you, you have something that you're living towards. Mm -hmm. Well, does she? It would have been her freedom and her ability to make her own decision. Well, it's great to get free, but then what? And then you can make decisions that matter. Listen, when I was in high school, the van driver mm -hmm. that used to take us back and forth was one of the Olympic weightlifting coaches for Soviet Russia. Hmm. And, and, and I was the last stop, and we used to share a cigarette on my way home, you know, because there's no one to tell on me. And, and finally, I just looked at him, and I said, you know, Velvel, why the hell did you leave? And he's like, what do you mean? Over here, I'm free. And I said, yeah, and over here, you drive a van. Over there, you were an Olympic weightlifting coach. How do you even begin to compare those? And he looked at me with this, like, sardonic smile, and he says, yeah, how do you begin to compare those? Because over here, I'm free. Wow. And, 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 and it, became, it, was a very, you know, it was a very formative experience for me. Yeah. To the point where now I took it for granted. I just said, you know, what, to, this, to this woman, just get out. Mm. At least you'll be free. And, and what she said was amazing. She says, what, what, what would I do? Where would I go? Yeah, that's what I'm asking for. And, and it reminded me of this novel. It's a French novel. I didn't read it. I, I can't read French. But the ending was so powerful that it was translated into a bunch of languages <laughs> where it goes through the whole situation. It's a modern novel set in modern day France. What novel? What novel? I wish I knew the name. Oh. I only read the translation. <laughs> it's this modern day novel. It's set in modern day France. And at the end, the protagonist is sitting with his Jewish friend in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about how France is a goner. The goose is cooked. Hmm. It's over. And they know from cooking goose in France. I was going to go with frogs, but yeah. Well, they know goose liver at any rate. Fogois. That's goose for, liver. Fogois. For, for, yeah. for those listening at home, the proper way to create a French accent is to jut your lower jaw out as far as it goes. And then to talk with the jaw out. And then you sound French. Fogois. Exactly. There you go. See? It works. Anyway. So the French guy in this novel turns to his Jewish friend and he says, Ah, you can always go to Israel, but me, hmm. where could I go? Ah. And what's incredible is when I read that, I was like, anywhere. <laughs> what kind of stupid question is that? I don't think it's true. That's the point. Yeah. That's the point. Mm -hmm. His personal identity is so bound up in his national identity mm -hmm. that he, you're right, physically he could go anywhere, but he'd never be there. Right. And we as Jews have perfected the portable civilization, the wandering Jew. Well, perfected. No, I dare say we have. Uh, you really like Borough Park? No, I actually hate Borough Park. But it's a portable civilization, and by God, it works. Generationally, it works. Hmm. And not only that, but built into the fact that it won't work in a few generations is the answer to what will then work. Right, yeah. And, and we've had that opportunity because we've had all these exiles and redemptions, because we've internalized this idea of the absorptive, formative, and transformative perspective of exile, that we have that ability to go anywhere and be anything and still be ourselves and to kind of bring all this full circle. Obviously, I care for my friend in Tehran. And as much as we joke about how they want to kill us twice, whoever the they is, <laughs> we have a big gratitude to Persia and the Persians. And it would be wonderful 
It really would. And I, and I, I, I pray for this, that they find their purpose of their exile, what they can take from this. And achieve and what, freedom. Exactly. Their redemption. Viva la Iran. I want to go one step beyond that. Okay. The portion that a person has in the world to come, the world which emerges from this world, the whole which comes out of this, individual portion in that is how one participates in being. Go on. The aspect of the individual which can exist in that universal is the extent to which you overcome the merely personal and identify with, become a part of the identity of the whole, of being. You're saying that the goal of somebody who lives the cycles of exile and redemption personally and nationally is someone who is not merely himself and is not a faceless cog in the machine, but is someone whose experience of life is such that what his personal struggles are are always a part of the greater picture of what he's a part of. Yes. That's something to aspire to. Yes, something to aspire to. It really is. No, no, I, I'm saying that for real. Our our tradition, that's really what it comes down to. That's what how it is to, to be, be you. Ben Olam Haba. Right. How to be you, which is kalul, as we would say, which is, which is subsumed by and a part of where you come from. How to be you within where you come from. And then neither. You, a true you. Yeah, that is mm-hmm. a true you. Mm-hmm. How do you identify with the aspect of you which is part of the perfected world? That is. You don't experience it because... It's not here yet. You're dimensionally disabled. You're stuck in time. Right. And But okay, that doesn't mitigate the ultimate reality of that. It does become a problem for our experience of that. It can be. Can we go beyond that restriction? Is there a way to expand your awareness and consciousness to that as part of what you see? I think so. I can't say I've done it, but I can say I think so. I want to give you a bracha, myself a bracha, and our listeners a bracha. A blessing. That you should taste your olam haba in olam hazeh. This is how we'll sign off, but in the Talmud, which, as we mentioned, is a product of our second go-round in Persia. Back then, most people were agricultural farmers. That was their, they were subsistence farmers. That's how they subsisted. And so they would only meet for studies twice a year. The, the, every six months, the month in between the planting and the harvesting season, seasons, that's when they would meet. That's when they would learn Torah. And then they go back. The way they would take leave of each other before they returned home for five more months of farm work was, may you merit to see your world in your days. Which in Hebrew, the way they would say it, had the connotations of, may you see the world to come in the world that you live in. I can think of no greater blessing to wish for, for us and for our listeners, than that. Amen. Amen.